the biggest mistake I see people making is they don't step back and think, well, what's going to make an interesting story? They don't put themselves in the shoes of the journalists. So there are all these people who are like, hey, well, I just got, I just got my new business launched. The world should want to write about this. Everybody, like, I just launched this business. You want to write a story about it? Like, well, that's not news. People are, you know, people are launching businesses um, every day. So you have to figure out, like, well, what's the angle on this company that makes it newsworthy? Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. On today's episode, I chat with Greg Gallant, the co-founder and CEO of Muckrack. Muckrack is a public relations management platform that helps organizations find the right journalist to pitch. It helps them report on media coverage and prove the value of their work. Now, Greg is a longtime New York startup player. He famously launched the Shorty Awards, where he gave out awards for the best tweets, and this became a super popular event just after the turn of the century. Along the way, he tinkered with a dozen business ideas until Muckrack finally hit, and that took him to the moon. We talk about Muckrack, the PR industry, and his wisdom about entrepreneurship. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Fire on Marketing. Fireon Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. Greg, thanks for being here today, buddy. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Yeah, looking forward to diving in. Uh, you mind starting off by giving us an overview of Muckrack? Sure. Muckrack is a uh, PR software suite. It's kind of like the system of record for a PR department or a PR agency. And it helps these uh, groups find the right journals to pitch. So if you want to have your name in the news and figure out like who are the right journals to pitch, it actually has a whole kind of CRM and workflow built in so you can then send emails to the journalist saying, hey, why don't you write about my new company, track those relationships, then it'll notify you when a journalist writes about your company, and finally help you build reports so you can show the impact of PR uh, and earn media on your company. And now we started with journalists. Now it's also podcasters like... Uh, like we're on right now, we happen to already know each other, but if not, I might have pitched you on being on this show using uh, finding you through Muckrack and pitching you that way, and then uh, building reporting on the impact of all, all those earned media connections too. And when did you start the company? It's been a little bit, right? Yeah, we started in 2009. Originally, it was a free website uh, for journalists. And then being in New York at the time, I kept running into PR people who were like, Oh, Muckrack, that's, uh, I use that all the time to figure out who to pitch. We're like, oh, we could probably make, we had all these ideas for tools we could build for them. And then we felt it would fit really well into a SaaS model. So we relaunched it as SaaS uh, late 2011. So, you know, pretty much either at our bar mitzvah year, uh, you know, 13 years in is the brand Muckrack and over a decade in now is the SaaS platform. Love that. 
Why did you start this? Because it's a little bit of a seemingly random niche, but it is a classically good internet solution in the sense that you've got a lot of data that's unstructured and you guys are bringing structure and clarity to it. Um, how'd, you, how'd you land on this concept? Yeah, it was kind of a, a twisty uh, path to get here. So I, I'd gotten into social media early on because I started a podcast back in 2005, back before podcasting was barely even a, a word. People were calling it RSS with enclosures back then because that was the technology that it used. A lot of people you had some big names know. on. You had some big names on your podcast. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I got I got Reed Hoffman. It was like I was interviewing entrepreneurs about how they got started, and now now many people do that. But back then, it was what might have been the first show that did that. So I had Reed Hoffman on back when LinkedIn was fifty employees still. I believe wow. it was the first podcast he was ever on, and he's telling me about his like wild vision that one day most people would have their resume online, which sounded kind of nutty at the time. And here we are. <laughs> Uh, 15 years later, then I then I had the founder of Yelp on back when Yelp was under 100 employees. I got John Bogle, the inventor of the Index Fund and, and the founder of Vanguard Group on my podcast. And one of the people I had on the podcast was Ev Williams, who is doing a, uh, a company called Odeo, which itself was a podcasting company. It was a kind of a podcast directory uh, discovery platform. If you've never heard of it, that's because it, it never worked. You never quite got to product market fit with it. So Ev pivoted to a little side project that he had called Twitter. That led me to sign up for Twitter really early. I'm just at Gregory on Twitter. I didn't even call in a favor. I was just the first person to type think to type in, you know, username Gregory into Twitter. And so I was on that kind of early Twitter bandwagon. Oh. I want to add something on that. I, I have at MPD. I definitely had to call in a favor, but it was still pretty early. And if you get the wrong name, the wrong handle, it's a disaster, right? Uh, a lot of people just type in at MPD when, they think, when they're thinking Metropolitan Police Department. And so I get all these messages about crimes going on and whatever else that I'm tagged in. It's kind of bizarre. But, uh, I think you I'm, should become like a vigilante superhero <laughs> and, and go fight. How do you know I'm not already? Good point. Very, very well hidden. Every vigilante is, uh, you know, under 5'5", five five, uh, VC type. So there you go. That's, that's, that's the best, uh, best kind. Uh, so anyway, so you're saying, so Ev, uh, you, you got in, you got Gregory. Yeah, I got Gregory. I saw there was all this good stuff happening on uh, social media. And kind of what, what struck me about Twitter was I was early... I was early on Facebook. Uh, I was able to join while I was in college uh, back when it was just for college kids. But, but back then, Facebook was you could only see content from your friends. It was before the news feed. And, and prior to that, it was Friendster and MySpace. And, and all of them, like you were only really making content for your friends. And fi- twi- uh, Twitter struck me because it was the first social network or social platform, whatever you want to call it, where you could make content that people other than your friends might be interested in. And that was starting to happen where you had celebrities getting on there and that you could actually be good at Twitter. But it had this big discovery problem. Like you couldn't, if you wanted to know about a certain topic on Twitter, 
there was no good way to figure out who to follow. So had this idea that you could, uh, someone could launch a site that would let people vote with the tweet, which now is common. No one had, had done that to date. And then aggregate who's the best by topic. And I got together with my co-founder, Lee Samuel, and, and we were kind of brainstorming, well, how do we get people to want to vote with the tweet for who's the best? And we said, well, let's call it an award. And tweets are short, so we'll call it the Shorty Awards. And that was the birth of this crazy idea. We built the website in two weekends. We, um, I mean, it wasn't a bit, you know, we didn't think of it as a business. We were like, this is just be a fun thing to do and we can build it in two weekends. Who cares? Let's see what happens. So, but this became a big deal in New York. At least I don't know if it was nationally, but I was in the scene at that time and this, this, this exploded. So the yeah. sh- I didn't realize the Shorty Awards was a side project for you. Yeah, it's uh, of everything I launched, and I glossed over things that I launched that didn't work, and I'm happy to get into them later on. But a, a very business idea I launched at two date or since, the Shorty Awards was the one that I thought had the least potential to ever be a business or make a profit. And it's the one that got the profitability the fastest, and it's still going today. I love that. So, yeah, so tell everyone what Shorty Awards is, because I, I don't know if everyone knows it. Yeah, so now it's grown to be awards for the best of social media. It's the, the lar- first and largest award of its kind, honoring, well, we started with kind of more influencers, and we still have that. Now it's also brands and agencies submit their best work on social media, and kind of winning a Shorty can really catapult someone's career forward and get them a lot more... Um, a lot more attention and really kind of give them a lot more license and, and help them in their career. Okay. But this was like a big award ceremony. I remember, I don't know what year it was, but first decade of the century. Uh, I remember showing up and you had celebrity hosts and, you know, fill in a little bit about the shorty story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it went viral in those first 24 hours. Um, and then kind of had this over like, Oh shit! People are gonna want to come to this award show because we launched a site. We didn't pro- we didn't say or promise there'd be an actual ceremony because we didn't know if anyone would care. And then when it happened, we're like, "Oh, this you know, people are gonna want to come." We don't have like a background in event production or award shows or anything like that. We didn't have much money, so I was just like scrambling, like, "Okay, I got to put this thing on." I was like. We've got to do the award show fast because this Twitter fad could end any moment now. <laughs> so we we just so I just announced like we're gonna like after it went viral, we just announced like hey the show will be two months from now, and then just scrambled to put the pieces together and and kind of the ignorance. I think the only reason we were able to pull it off is because we had no idea like how hard it is to pull off an event. So like that first venue we found, I did the deal on a handshake with the, um, with the owner. We did a Galapagos heart space in Dumbo, uh, Brooklyn, back before Dumbo, Brooklyn was a, a place anyone wanted to set foot. Um, and I did the deal on it. I did that on a handshake. And now looking back, knowing that like we do 50 page event contracts and have insurance writers and all this stuff, I'm just like, that's insane. I can't believe yeah. we did it. I would, I would never do that now, but we didn't know any better and it worked. So, you know, sometimes you get lucky. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise doing it. 
But it was just that kind of thing. You know, we had uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, BBC all covered the Shorty Awards in 24 hours of launch. Uh, I, I DM'd, uh, a, like, at the time, there weren't all that many celebrities on Twitter. So it was notable who was there. So I DM'd both uh, Shaq and MC Hammer and got them both to participate all by direct message. Uh, I got Gary Vaynerchuk there back when he was just a wine library guy. Um, one of the craziest parts about it, so our office at the time was in Dumbo, Brooklyn. And, you know, again, this shows how little we know about event production and, and why after the first one, I, let me caveat before it makes me sound completely irresponsible. We started hiring professional event producers. <laughs> so we learned our lessons. But that first one, we were doing it ourselves. So I go to print out the script. First copy comes out. I'm like, okay, let me print out the second copy. Ran out of ink. And there's no like office supply stores anywhere near Dumbo, Brooklyn. And it, this is before Uber. So there's no easy way to get around to anywhere. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess we only have one copy of the script. And I hand it to... Um, so, you know, fast forward a few hours. I'm in the green room. I hand the script to MC Hammer and he starts giving me all these notes on it. He's just like, hey, you know, it says the Shorty Awards in music. It should be the Music Shorty Award. He's like critiquing the copy. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, Can't Touch This is the first uh, single I owned as a kid, you know, the cassette tape. So right. I'm just like, it's just surreal that like Hammer is giving me this, this right. feedback. And you don't have a printer to change anything anyway. So what's the difference? Yeah, exactly. So what, did he do it? Did he do it to script or he riffed? What happened? Oh, well, he riffed. But the, the real moment was that um, kind of he's giving me all these notes and holding on to the script. And the show's about to start. And I'm like, uh, Hammer, I, I, I need the script back. And that's when he realized he had the only copy of the script. <laughs> and he just looked kind of mortified, but he, he was very right. gracious and handed it back. I've since learned right. best practices. You, you print out a copy of everyone's section and you just give it to them to keep and memorize before, before right. they go up there. But it was just, yeah, completely slapdash. But, um, you know, it was like the, the expectations then, because Twitter is so new, that first year we could get away with all that. And I'm just lucky it didn't turn into like Fire Festival. When when I watched that, this was long before the Fire Festival. When I watched that right. documentary, I was like, "Oh shit, that could have could have yeah. easily been us." Mm -hmm. Okay, so but how did you get from Shorty Awards to uh, Muckrack? Because there, there's a bridge there, right? Yeah, I mean, what struck me what struck me at the Shorty Awards was how quickly we got press. So when I launched things previously, like when I was working in podcasting. It was always really hard to get the media to pay attention to something new. I'm, I'm sure you know with your portfolio companies, like it's it's hard to get press attention. Uh, and with the Shorty Awards, it just you know landed on us. It, it was all the big outlets were reaching out to us to cover it. Uh, we had a lot of these kind of like early journalists who were like big on social back then, like Brian Stelter, who at the times who at the time was still at the New York Times and has since gone on to being a CNN anchor and all these kind of early Twitter journalists. So kind of got this front row seat to seeing like how journals specifically were using Twitter in a big way to figure out what to cover, what to write about. And thought uh, there's still no way to find it. 
And it was funny, everyone was questioning kind of Twitter's credibility back then uh, in that, like, how can you trust that anything on Twitter is real at all? And I thought like, well, you know, if you trust the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or any publication, like, why shouldn't you want to pay attention to what their journalists are saying on social? So version one of Muckrack in 2009, we, again, very simple site, no business model. We built it in two weeks and it was just, here are all the journalists on social, um, organized by what publication they're at. Launched it. And then in that first year, we ran that alongside trying a bunch of other business ideas. So we didn't focus on it just yet. But we noticed in that first year, uh, it, we had over 10,000 journalists requests to get listed on Muckrack. So we found we'd kind of gone viral in the journalism community. The New York Times even linked to uh, Muckrack on their intranet like to show their journalists how to find their colleagues uh, on, on social. So we're kind mm -hmm. of in that early like social revolution of journalism. And, uh, and then being in New York at the time, I kept running into PR people because, uh, you know, it's, it's a big, big media town. And all the PR people were like, oh, you do Muckrack. I use your site to figure out which journalists to pitch and to kind of monitor what they're up to. I was like, oh, that's interesting. We have this like profession of people already using us to do their job. We had all these ideas for software tools we could build on top of the data that we had. Uh, to help them better find the right journalists. We, we saw there was this big problem where it was like hard for PR people or even entrepreneurs who want to find the right journalists to like find them efficiently. And the journalists were getting all the spam because all the legacy tools didn't, didn't have good targeting ability uh, as far as we could tell. So we thought like, hey, here's a great opportunity. And I'd also got to witness a lot of my friends start, this is before even people were saying SaaS a lot, but just the idea of like, subscription sites, you know, where you, you pay in a reoccurring manner to access online software. And so, and I was always into all of those models because the Shorty Awards, it was always profitable, but we could never predict how much revenue we'd get. So I always had these kind of sleepless nights of, hey, what if we don't land these deals this year? Um, we could lose money and, and it was hard to grow it because I mean, we ended up growing it just fine, but it it was challenging because we couldn't predict the revenue. So it was hard to hire people around it and, and all that versus with, with SaaS. I was like, Oh, if I knew exactly how much money I was going to make every month or at least be able to predict it with 95% accuracy, I could reinvest and keep growing. So got kind of really excited both about the problem that we could solve and the business model that, uh, that we could have. And that led us to relaunch it as a, as a SaaS, uh, application in, uh, I believe, December 2011. Recurring revenue is really a godsend, just to put an exclamation point on what you're saying. It makes it a lot easier to manage a business. Um, you're talking about Muckrack. You've talked about your kind of initial feature set, which got you in motion on this. What does the software do now? I'm, I mean, you're 10 years later in development. I know you had a long roadmap ahead of you when you started it. What, what's the yeah, scope? So yeah, so probably 95% of what's there now in Muckrack didn't exist when we launched it. Uh, but it still serves the same customer base and we still, um, we still uh, have a lot of customers from that very first cohort uh, from 2011. Um, 
And kind of where, yeah, it started really as this like point solution to find the right journals to pitch. And then as we talked to our customers, they were like, hey, we love your software, but we also need to track those relationships with journalists. We need to monitor the news. We need to build reports for management and a whole host of other things. So we kept building and we've now made it into this kind of system of record for the PR department. So kind of by analogy, like how a a sales team's going to run all their processes through a CRM like Salesforce or HubSpot or you know your uh, HR team when it comes to recruiting is going to use an applicant tracking system like Greenhouse or iSIMS. Uh, the, the PR department, they've never really had a system of record software. We have legacy competitors that have been more historically like research tools that, that they use, but they've never had like kind of a full kind of system of record that they can track all their relationships with journalists, have workflows, and then see the relationship between who they pitched and all the relationships they built, and then the outputs of how much press they got and how that how that press drove the needle for them. So that's really what we're working on now in our next evolution and uh, we see the big opportunity in. And I assume you guys are kind of the big fish in the PR world, right? It seems like everyone's on this platform. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, we are the fastest growing at scale. We have some uh, legacy competitors, one of which was started as a book in the 1800s that are still, you know, bigger than us by, um, you know, by headcount and absolute revenue, just because it, you know, it takes a while to grow. But we're, gro- I mean, we grew seventy five percent last year. We're just about to cross the two hundred person mark. So it, it's been, um, it, we're we're kind of taking that mantle. And I think if you just find a PR person and ask them, like, hey, what's what's the best PR platform to to be on? Most of the time, you know, you're going to hear our name said. That's awesome. Um, what's success for you in this venture? I mean, you've been uh, tinkering as an entrepreneur for a long time. What yeah, you, you know, the, the definition of success always, uh, always changes uh, as, as we go. But, uh, I, you know, there are constants to it. So... I mean, to me, what, what's really fun is just getting to build software, solve customers' problems. That's something that, that's no different than when we started. As we've gotten to scale, though, a lot more of kind of how I define success is about like... Because I mean, when we started, it was my co-founder and I. So we bootstrapped the whole thing. So it wasn't like one of these companies where we had 20 people working on a pre-launch. So right. at the very beginning, we weren't thinking like, oh, let's make it a great place to work. It's just like, well, it's just the two of us and we're having fun building the software. But now that's become a big part of it. We were early to the remote first movement where um, pre, pre-COVID, we had an office in New York, but only half the company was in the New York area. And even for the New Yorkers, we never forced them to come in. And average day, less than half the people would come to the office. And then early on, we made in the pandemic, we, we just said, okay, we're going to be fully remote. So, uh, you know, now to me, success is like, can we make Mockrack a great place to, to grow your career, um, to make an impact on the world and, and do it all, you know, in embracing this remote first world and not, not feel like that's a, you know, a crutch or a disadvantage, but that it's something that, um, 
that can make the company even better and that we can make people feel really you know connected and included uh, doing that and we think we do that right that that leads to us becoming uh, a whole lot bigger because we're in a you know we're in a big market so we can bring even you know give even more people that experience and then uh, give everyone who works for us now the the chance to keep growing it's the kind of answer from someone who keeps going right the people who are answering money once they make their money there's not a lot left right but for a lot of entrepreneur types, you know, the fear of not having money is the stick. And once, once those folks get a payday, there's still a carrot there. So they might not be stressed, but there's reason to play, reason to have impact, reason to get out of bed. Um, someone really smart in my life recently said, um, work is a luxury good, which I yeah. thought was super insightful because I think we all have this idea that you want to retire and when you retire, you know, I think that harkens back to a day when people had terrible commutes and they were doing their job by paper and corporate culture was crappy and they never changed jobs. Um, but now in this age where you can sit at home by the pool for 20, 30 hours a week in your later years and use your mind and have purpose, it's really a luxury item. So it's uh, when I hear you talking about this, I, you know, it reminds me there's going to be we're going to be on the show talking again in another 15 years about the next thing you built. Um, now, you mentioned something earlier. You said um, you, didn't, you bootstrapped the whole thing. Tell me about the pros and cons of that. I've, I've uh, built companies that have been venture-backed. I've built companies that we bootstrapped. Um, no correlation with success by model for me. Uh, but the, um, it's a different game. How did you feel about the bootstrap approach? You recommended to others when to do it, when not to. Yeah, I, I love the bootstrapping approach. Um, I'll, I'll get to when to do it and when not to. I think that's important. I'm not religious. Like, there's some people who are religious about it. Like, hey, you should always raise venture and get to market fast. And some people who are like, oh, taking on any kind of money is debt and, you know, uh, it's what ruins society. But before I get to that, I'll, I'll answer your first question with the pros and cons. I mean, let me start with the cons. You, you have no money. So first years are rough. Um, you know, we didn't pay ourselves for a while. And there were many years where even where I could pay myself, I was, you know, making way less than all my friends of my same age. And yeah, I'm not even saying that I had super successful friends, just that I was making way, way little money, especially living in New York City uh, at the time. The great, my, my tips though is, you know, between Joe's pizza and Mamoon's falafel, I was able to, uh, able to eat really cheaply. Um, I also recommend networking with as many VCs as possible because they'll usually pay for lunch or dinner, which is another <laughs> good way. Great hack. To, exactly. Yeah. I got the, I always got a venture funded without the equity, without giving up any equity. Um, so, I mean, that's a big con. You don't have money. And, and seriously, too, not just, you know, for yourself, but there were, yeah, I would say until you get to like a, a few million in revenue, at least in our experience, you know, at least in my experience, it's like, you're always like, oh man, if I had an extra 100K, I know exactly what to do with it. And then every time the revenue grew, it's like, well, we know we need to hire these five positions. So we're going to fight about, you know, which of these five do we hire? And it's so hard to be like, oh, do we hire that programmer we desperately need or the first marketing person? Or um, you know a bookkeeper, so that I'm not spending three days a week reconciling the books. 
so that's the struggle, you know, that's the struggle of bootstrapping is just like those, you know, the, it's like until you get to a few million in revenue, it's always that battle. And then we get to the pros though, which is uh, A, you own the whole thing or you and your, your co-founders do, which, you know, it's pretty awesome. And like people, you know, I think a lot of times people, especially like if you're just in the venture capital bubble ecosystem, people kind of downplay like the per- pernicious effects of dilution, which is, you know, you take that first round when you're tiny and you go 20 or 30%. But then once you're on that VC treadmill, they're like you're you're being pushed to always spend more than you're making. So you have to keep doing more rounds. So it's like you're not just, you know, I know there are some new models now where you don't have to do this, but the traditional VC model is like the second you take that first round, they're both pushing you to spend as much as possible to grow fast. And they want you to take another round so that, you know, they can market to market and, and show that they have uh a success that they, you know, their series A investment now got a series B. So you're signing up where, you know, the founders are all going to get diluted to this minority position of the company. And there's a lot of um, middle outcomes where the, the effect of that can be huge. Like if you're, if you grow a company and you see this all the time, like company might sell for 50 million, but then you find out, you know, Hey, they, they raised 60 million in venture capital or even maybe they raised 25 million in venture capital, but because of preferences and all these terms in there, the vast majority go to the VCs and the founders, despite selling a company for 50 million, which should be this, you know, life-changing outcome, don't make a lot of money or maybe you don't make any money along with, you know, the employees and all that. Versus, you know, I know people who bootstrap companies and they sell it for $10 million and they make more money than the the VC back company that sells for 50 or 100 million. So there's you know that ownership which is huge. There is not having to deal with a, a board of directors which I think you know people people debate the value of a board but I think in those early years in a business where you're always pivoting I don't know I've never had the experience you you probably have a good perspective on this but it can be hard to like flare flail around and keep trying out different business ideas because the strategies in those early days might be changing every week. And if you have to layer in like, oh, I got to communicate this to a board and the investor community, it's a lot more work than just being like, hey, I'm just going to communicate this to customers in the market and see, see what sticks. And you know, the final piece is always just the, the time it takes to fundraise is not insignificant. So in those early years, we used to sometimes think like, well, what if we went down and tried to get a Series A? And they were like, well, we'd have to drop everything and do nothing for three months except for fundraise. Like, what if we had spent those three months pushing like hell to get more customers? And then we'd have more revenue, more funding, and, and no dilution, and the business would be worth more. So that was our thought process. And let me just cap it all off by, by answering the last part of your question, which is... Um, you know, when to do it and when not to, because, uh, you know, you're a VC, so I don't want to dissuade all your listeners, but I think... No, it's good. I agree with everything you're saying so far, so <laughs> let's keep going. Yeah, but I, I think, um, you know, the time to do it is if you're, you know, A, if you're not sure how big your market is, then um, that's a great time to bootstrap because you have that optionality. 
And we weren't sure. I mean, it turns out our market's big enough, you know, if, uh, in retrospect, you know, we would, uh, you know, you know, it, it, we could have a venture like outcome for somebody, but we didn't know that right when we were starting. So it was nice to know, Hey, if this thing, you know, if growth slowed at a few million on ARR, it could have still just been an awesome business for us. We could have just cash flowed a bunch out, had a few employees running it and had a good life. So, you know, I think it's like, you're not sure the market size, it's great. If you, if you think you're going to need a long time horizon, it's great. I mean, we've been at this, you know, the SaaS part is we've been at it for 10 years. You, you think about it, we probably created more value due to our growth rate in the last two years than we did in the first eight. But if we'd raised venture at the beginning, it'd have been unlikely we'd have found a venture capitalist uh, patient enough to wait 10 years largely just due to their fund structure and, and all the structural dynamics. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, if you want time horizon, flexibility, you're not sure of the market, how big the market is and how big the business could be, those are great reasons to bootstrap. And I think the reasons to take venture is like if you, either some businesses you just need, I mean, if you want to build a rocket, right, you need to just invest a ton in R&D before you're going to see a dollar in revenue. Some businesses you need a network effect to have them work. Um, you know, like even if you look at like Twitter and Facebook, I don't begrudge them taking venture money. Like, it, you know, for Facebook, right? It needed this huge network effect of having lots of people on it before the ad model would really work for it. So it made, made sense to go out and raise venture for that. Sometimes if the growth rate is just super fast and, uh, or, you know, you're in a new market that's like heating up really fast. Venture could be really good for that. Um, so, so I think there are definitely model, you know, places where you should take it. I think there can also be some middle paths where, you know, a lot of times you see the companies get out ahead because they raise more venture than anyone else. But then sometimes it's like you see like the number two or the number three player, they can like sell and they own a lot more of the company and their founders do awesome. And then like that person who's the market leader gets so diluted that the you know the the company might be worth more but the founders are worth a whole lot less. So I think you just have to be really thoughtful about how you how you stack up your your funding and your capital structure. The uh, I think this is a huge topic, right? Everyone when you ask an entrepreneur what's going to determine the success of your venture, everyone's talking market size, you know, team, and those things are all true, but very few people are talking about the financing strategy. Uh, so I, I wrote a book on fundraising. I'm probably the worst book promoter ever. Uh, but I think this is my single biggest contribution is a kind of a framework around when to bootstrap and when to do VC funding. Um, and it's been picked up by a few business schools now, which makes me feel pretty good about all the work I put into that. Um, but the the thing that I think that's super interesting that you're adding to it is this idea of focusing on product market fit. And there's a couple of anecdotes I've heard through the years where, look, Raising venture capital can be a total home run of a move if you know what you're, if you know how the product works, who you're acquiring, you know, you have product market fit already sorted. If you're still figuring out, it's a bit of a danger zone because, like you said, some VCs might not be patient. You have to start hitting your numbers. And so, if you've raised mm -hmm. venture too early on with VCs that have certain expectations, it can derail you a little bit. So, I think there's some uh, wonderful optionality in waiting till you've really got the economic engine going if you can wait that long it can't always sometimes the market's just too competitive and a bit of a land grab 
And if you get that optionality, then deciding if you want to grow faster or not, I think there's real choices there. My experience, having been a founder of both venture-backed and not venture-backed bootstrap companies, is that venture usually cuts two to three years out of the cycle of the growth rate. But if you need two to three years to really entrench product market fit, that can be a liability. And so there's a company in our portfolio that's really successful. Uh, and the story the founder had it, when, they, when they pitched us, it's really cool. They had started this business in college. And there were three other companies doing the same thing. And they all got venture funded. And he was the only one that couldn't raise capital. Mm-hmm. And so they went guns blazing into the market, spending all this money and went really fast. But they went so fast, they never really got found full product market fit. He went slow and found it, ended up acquiring all of their assets as they fell apart one by one <laughs> and is now, you know, a unicorn. So it ended up having the, the long road ended up being the right road in that market. It's not always the case, though. That's awesome. Yeah, time horizon matters so much. I love what you say about product market fit. I think it's both, you have the luxury to find it, but you also, you also don't have any other option because when you're venture backed, you could. You spend a lot of time just thinking about how do I make my investors happy? And if the investors love the strategy I show them, then maybe I'm on the right course. And maybe you're kind of ignoring the fact that customers don't really care. But if you're bootstrapped and you're reliant on those customers to pay you money, you're going you're gonna to have to find product market fit or, uh, or it's all going to unravel pretty quickly. So it's kind or of dead. Goes the grindstone. And, yeah. And that's a good thing because then you go spend time on another project, which might be better use of your time. Well said, sometimes yeah. Fail, yeah, sometimes failure is the best outcome for folks. Save the time. Um, I, I, want, I do want to pick your brain on a couple of other topics. We've got a PR SaaS whiz in the room. How, do people, how should entrepreneurs, folks out there, think about leveraging PR? What, what's the, what role does it play? When should people engage it? What, what are the strategies for making PR work for creating value for a company? Yeah, PR and, you know, earned media in general or whatever you want to call it, you know, getting, getting someone to write about you or interview you where you're not paying them. It's super powerful, both because it carries more credibility because people know you're not being, being paid to do it. And, um, and it's free. So especially you're bootstrapping, like you're not paying for it, especially in this time where the, um, uh, paid media is getting less effective online or direct response anyhow, where, you know, the death of the cookie and you can see it in Facebook's numbers, like it's harder to spend money to acquire users now. Things can be super powerful, but I, I think the you know, most important thing is you first step back and have to ask yourself, what's your goal? Because there can be many things to accomplish with PR. Sometimes it might be to acquire customers. Um, that's not the, you know, I wouldn't even say that's the most common use of PR, but, you know, for some businesses getting PR is a great way to acquire customers. Actually, Airbnb, uh, Bill Gurley had a great, uh, tweet storm about how, uh, PR was one of Airbnb's biggest, uh, ways to attract customers and hosts because nobody was Googling for like, how do I Mm. rent a house from a stranger in a city I've never been to? So they couldn't do direct response, they had to go out there to the market and say, hey, there's this crazy new way to stay somewhere. Stay somewhere. And it, it made for a really good story. It was novel. It was unique. Uh, you know, it kind of captured people's wanderlust imaginations. 
So, you know, for them, it was this, this very capital efficient um, way, to, way to get the news out there about them. Another, another big part of it is just for credibility. So sometimes maybe you are doing direct response advertising, but when people get to your website, they're like, well, I've never heard of this company before. But if you can point to and say, hey, look, we were just written about in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, that's a way to show like we're for real, that this, this company really matters. It's kind of a, a seal of endorsement. And sometimes it might be a very specific business outcome that you want to drive. Like, if you're raising money, you should be doing you know, PR at a place that all the potential investors you want to reach read so that you know, they're reading about you. So then when you email them, they're like, oh, I've heard of that company. I want to I wanna go engage with them. Or if you need uh, distributors and there's trade publications or podcasts that, that these distributors listen to, seeding the market that way and, and building credibility to that specific audience can really matter. So, so first, it's just super important to like figure out like what your goal is with the PR before going out and trying to get it, which is a surprising number. It sounds obvious, but surprising number of entrepreneurs who come to me and ask software, it's like, how do I get in the press? It's like, slow, slow down. What, what do you want to accomplish with PR? And then you, and then we can come with the rest of the strategy. When doesn't it work? You know, I think when PR doesn't work is when you don't have a... The biggest mistake I see people making is they don't step back and think, well, what's going to make an interesting story? They don't put themselves in the shoes of the journalist. So there are all these people who are like, hey, well, I just got, I just got my new business launched. The world should want to write about this. Everybody, like, I just launched this business. You want to write a story about it? Like, well, that's not news. People are, you know, people are launching businesses um, every day. So you have to figure out, like, well, what's the angle on this company that makes it newsworthy? Um, like, I remember I was once helping out this this founder. She'd started a fashion tech company. She used to work for, I think it was the uh, the Gelt Group or you know a, a well known. Uh, fashion startup at the time back when they were really hot. And and uh, she told me, oh, I pitched all these journalists and no one wrote back. And I'm like, well, let me see the pitch. And it was like this long pitch describing what her company does, you know, in very technical terms. She wanted to seem like a big company. So she took out the fact that she was the founder and just, you know, didn't have a title there as though she was just a PR person who, who was working mm-hmm. there. And I just helped her rework the pitch to be like three or four lines. And it was like, hey, I'm a, um, and, and, you know, especially, I mean, there still are way too few female founders, but back then there were, there were even less. So that, that was a great part of the story and, and engineers. So tweaked it to be like, I used to be an engineer at Gilt Group. I just started my own fashion tech company. Would you, you know, it, it, one, one sentence description of what it does. Would you be interested in learning more? That was it. That was the pitch. Not every detail about how it works, what the business model is going to be. And it went from getting no replies out of 10 to like four out of 10 replies from the, the journalist uh-huh. she pitched. And it's just like that thinking like, okay, well, to the journalist, it's not interesting just that there's this, a new random fashion tech company. It's that, hey, this person broke off of a well-known company. 
you know, female former engineer, now founder. Like, at the, she, you know, she actually had this great story, but she was just focused on the technical parts. And not to say that's every, every time, but there's always something, you know, unique to it. You know, it might be, you know, it's like people launch venture funds all the time, but do they always, is it a podcast or launching a venture fund? Or like, what, what could you connect to it that, that makes it something new in the world that someone's going to want to read about and not just like why it's important to you is the founder. Yeah, there's probably a lot of podcasting VCs at this point. So I yeah, don't know if that's that novel either. Be the best example. Yeah. I'm sure there's yeah. lots of other. If we had a little time to workshop this, we, we'd find a lot of unique angles. You're hired. Look, you, you've been in and around the PR world intentionally or accidentally since shorty awards even before the podcast. You've, you've been out producing content and getting, creating awareness around stuff. What does the industry need? Looking at where it is now, like what what does it need? Yeah, I, th- I think there's generally just a lot more needed for earned media. Everyone, I think, has pointed their attention towards ad tech and paid advertising because it's just such an obvious business model. But now I think we're seeing it's like oversaturated. There's you know you can look at those loom escapes and all these. Um, just how many logos there are in it all and seeing nobody quite knows, you know, where, where, how exactly the dollar travels between when you spend it and when there's banner appears on the site and, and how many of them are real. So I think broadly the space of earned media is really exciting. I mean, even right now we're talking over Riverside. I remember when I started my podcast in 05, I had to use a voice modem to record it and then all these hacky solutions along the way. And now, now it's become very easy. So um, one click. Yeah, exactly. One click. And, and then it's, you know, getting continually easier to do all the pieces around podcasting, uh, to publish them and get them out. Not saying it's easy because I know your producer is working really, uh, working really hard on this. Uh, but, but I think in general, you know, where I'd point people is just like, this whole world of earned media, be it PR, podcasting, newsletters, like there's just a lot of opportunity here to help companies uh, connect with the right people to tell their stories and even to tell their own stories as many do on podcasts. And I think that's, you know, that's going to be kind of like the next, the next big thing. And I feel like to the extent we are headed into a uh, recessionary environment, it's like even more important because people, more people have to be bootstrappers and tell these stories on their own in an efficient way. And, and people have to kind of shift from uh, just, you know, spending their way out of problems to being creative about how they, how they tell stories and acquire users or customers. Greg, what I love about your story in particular is as I was talking, hearing you talk about um, Muckrack, the Shorty Awards, everything before, it's like you never really started a company. You just kept tinkering with projects. And then when the market pulled something and created demand, you built a business around it. Is that the right way to think about entrepreneurship? How should people take, what insights should people take from that approach that worked for you? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good takeaway. And again, you know, I'd caveat it with my, my approach was, hey, if you can launch something on the cheap, don't think too much about it before you launch it. 
So I wouldn't recommend this approach if you want to start a restaurant and you're going to sign a five-year lease and sink hundreds of thousands of dollars into you know, designing it and hiring a staff and all, of, all the stuff you have to do for a capital-intensive business like a restaurant. But if you have an idea um, online where you think you can build it in a few weeks or even a few months, what I found is like if you take the traditional business approach of like, hey, I'm going to write my 100-page business plan, I'm going to seek out 10 advisors, get their thoughts on it, then uh, you know, it slows you down because you're not learning from the market. A lot of times those advisors, I mean, like advisors are awesome when it comes to like, hey, I'm, you know, I've got a 20 person sales team and how do I restructure it to get to 50 or like a real business problem. But if I'm just like, hey, I have this wacky idea, will it work? Advisors can't tell you that. You got to go out, out to the market and and test it. So that's where, where I adopted this philosophy. I'm like, as long as we can build the thing in under a couple months, like, let's just go do it. And one kind, and I learned this the hard way, but like, then what I did was I structured it with like a holding company that we just called Sawhorse Media. And I, I, I remember I had to come with a holding company name in a pinch because it was right after the Shorty Awards took off and I needed to tell, tell people what to write the check to. And I was looking around our office and we'd followed this bootstrapping tip that, um, I learned about from read, reading about the early days of Amazon and apparently what Bezos did that we also did, instead of sinking a lot of money into buying nice desks, you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and you just buy a, a door mm. and two sawhorses and throw the door across the two sawhorses and that's your desk. So I was looking around, I saw the sawhorses in our office and I kind of liked that it it told the story of our bootstrapping and, and also it harkened back. Remember like the early like under construction signs you'd see on websites where yeah. it'd be the little guy in the hard hat with the sawhorse. So I liked that it felt like that, you know, under construction sign. It was a yeah. gif actually uh, before gifts were cool. So, so we called it sawhorse media because of that, but that freed us up a lot because then it's like, Hey, testing out shorty words, testing out muckrack, testing out this, testing out that. We didn't have to launch a new corporate entity each time and, um, you know, deal with all the overhead, uh, you know, and, and, you know, there, there's, you know, a lot of things that go into starting, uh, you know, full on new businesses. Just like, okay, well, we got the LLC. So um, let's just try this website and that website. And each time it was just spending $8 on GoDaddy to buy a new domain name. And then um, spinning up the site. So it gave us all this flexibility to try all these things. And the analogy I use was more, more like um, I always thought about back in that golden era of like TV where, where like NBC had the hit, you know, the hit Seinfeld and the hit Friends. But for each hit they had, they tried out, they piloted 10 different shows that didn't work. And, you know, nobody fired the network execs at NBC because nine shows didn't work. They were just like, well, one show worked. I mean, it's like being a VC, right? Too, you're, you're hoping one or two of your, the companies you invest in work and the rest, well, you know, you, you write off or they have middle outcomes. So I thought, you know, so I kind of try to apply that to entrepreneur as the entrepreneur where it's like, well, how can I give myself as many at-bats as possible? to figure out what's going to strike fire and and just learn more quickly what's going to be out there. 
versus just you know picking one idea, falling in love with it, and spending five years slogging it out to see if it'll work. What percentage failed? Uh, I guess 90, actually, because what, what happened was actually after we launched Muckra- Muckrack, we originally made it a platform so we could curate for other verticals. So we launched um, Giant Red Carpet, a celebrity uh, aggregator. We launched Venture Maven, a site we could find all the VCs on social in one place. Um, we launched the Pet Feed, where you could see all the pets on social media uh, at the time. So we launched 10 sites like that. Then we launched something called the Storius. It was the first ever Twitter list aggregator. Um, and we, we actually licensed out our platform too to like American Express and Kindy Nass. We made some, some money from that. But I was looking around at all of them and, and none of them, yeah, none of them felt scalable. And then I just saw Muckrack over there in the corner kind of neglected where it had this like really obvious use case and loyal audience and that really like, okay, let's go and double down on that. I should also mention like, you know, prior to all that, when I was doing my podcast, I'd also launched a, um, a podcast ad network back in 2005. We built the first ever dynamic ad insertion for podcasts. So, you know, in retrospect with that one, we were 10 years too early to the market because people, people launched that exact same business in 2015 and did great. Um, but, but that one was just way too early, so, you know, so if you add it up, you know, I've launched dozen, you know, over a dozen different, I don't know if, if they're all can be considered a full on business, but web, con- you know, websites, uh, you know, of substance that were trying to be businesses and then two of them worked and, uh, you know, one of them has grown a lot bigger than the other, but I don't, what well, I would never predicted this would have been the one that worked. It was giving myself all that time to experiment is what, what allowed me to be lucky in that case. You've had a lot of experience through all these ventures. What is the most important thing you've learned as an entrepreneur? It's that you always have to be adapting and learning and have humility, both because in the idea discovery phase, like I just described, you're going to have lots of failures along the way, no matter how smart you are. And I learned that interviewing other entrepreneurs too, or even someone like Ev Williams, who started Blogger, Twitter, and Medium, you know, three kind of fundamental sites to the internet also had Odeo, and then that didn't work at all. And then the other thing I've seen scaling up, um, very humbling for me, like when I started, even when I had success as an early entrepreneur, it was just me working with a couple other people and some contractors versus then, you know, very humbling moment to like figure out like, oh, I know nothing about managing a 10 person company and having all these employees. And then next level scale, I know nothing about like having a one management layer between me and the employees. And then the next level scale where it's like, oh, I knew nothing about like how to actually hire executives who will met hire and manage managers who manage the employees and then what it takes to get messaging out to a company with over a hundred people in it. So, you know, it's like, even if you're a success, all you're rewarded with is just, you know, being pushed to new areas that you're going to be incompetent in until you figure them out. So you just have to kind of brace yourself for that and accept that like, you know, even success as an entrepreneur or growth as an entrepreneur means more humbling moments and more areas where you're, you're going to have to keep learning and figuring it out. 
Greg, thanks for being on today. Really appreciate all the wisdom you've shared. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me on and, and thanks for doing this. It's great to see you uh, giving out more, uh, more resources for other entrepreneurs out there. Amen. That was awesome. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, Greg definitely has a lot of experience with startups and he dropped some real wisdom about how to think about the early stages, the tinkering, the experimentation. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.